Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Genesis 3 will start at the beginning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, Above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God, why is there so much pain in this world, in my world? My parents migrated to Australia. 1970, I was seven, my sister was six. They worked hard. Fix the mic. Why is there so much pain? Uh, came in 1970, that better? My uh, parents came from Hong Kong, I was seven, my sister was six. Uh, migrated for a great life uh, to improve my education, improve my opportunities in this great country. I remember the first time my father earned $50 that day. We went to a KFC in Atarman and just celebrated and ate KFC. Two weeks ago, I went to that same KFC. It's amazing, still there. I was getting drive-through for my sister, who is actually now in a psychiatric rehab place. Uh, she graduated from medicine as well, but did intern, but decided schizophrenia broke in and she really has not worked since then. My parents were very sacrificial. Uh, my sister didn't want to go on holidays and so they didn't go on holidays for the last 35 years. It was just with her until about two and a half years ago my father passed away of um, dementia and then half a year later my mother of cancer. My sister managed for a little while but then about 15 months ago I uh, thought that her medication was really poison so stopped taking them ended up in an acute hospital. So she's been in the care of our great health system. One of the medications had a side effect, which the staff did not detect, and I don't blame them at all. And it made her bowels stop working, but no one knew. And so she ended up in hospital at North Shore with a blood pressure of 60 on 30, sepsis everywhere, just managed to survive. And in the end, she had to lose her whole large bowel. And so now she has a little bag, which is probably there for the rest of her life. As her guardian, that I think was one of the hardest decisions I had to make because it affects her every day. Three times a day has to be emptied by the staff. It was the right thing to do. There's no really other choice. She could have died otherwise, but... And so two weeks ago, I drove through KFC I had to actually have my tooth removed uh, because I'd been so stressed. I thought I coped with stress, but I'd been clenching in the night and tooth removed. And anyway, I drove through KFC, got her some food. I was chewing the chicken on one side of my mouth and she enjoyed it. But the doctor said, look, she really still thinks you're an imposter, not really her brother. Actually, she still thinks that you are a Nazi. And that's not metaphorical, you know. She, a friend of mine said, uh, looked at the funny side of it and said, well, you know, your wife is half Jewish and so you are Nazi married to a Jew. <laughs> and I thought it was a bit funny, but then I thought, it's really not that funny because it reminded me that out there in the world there's a lot bigger problems than what I faced. My father-in-law, when he was in his teens, actually went through the concentration camps. He's a Holocaust survivor. But that's just 
another story, another painful story. See, for many of us, God, why is there so much suffering in this world? It's not just a theoretical question, is it? We feel the pain, we feel the hurt. It's not just a smokescreen to get Christians, you know, shivering because it's such a hard question. It's not just a question to keep God at arm's length. It's a real question in our lives. Why is there so much pain? If you haven't had so much pain, well, great. You're just going to have a few more birthdays and it will come. And when it comes, we all want to blame someone. And who better to blame than God? You know, aren't you meant to be good? Aren't you meant to be powerful? Then why am I going through this? God, are you not there? God, do you not care? In Chat God, we try to actually ask God these questions. And you know what? It's not the first time that God has answered these questions. And he's been blamed before as well. In fact, this is the one of the big questions which, in some sense, the whole Bible answers. Why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? And so I want to point to Chat Gen 3, Chat Genesis chapter 3, where God speaks the truth about this world. In Genesis 3, there's a little symbolism, but we can understand it. There's lots of picture symbolism, even in our cartoons that we see every now and then. There's a cartoon. The eagle, the bear, USA, Russia. Right? You don't have to explain what it means. Well, Genesis chapter 3 is a bit like that. There's picture language here. Right? There's the man, there's the woman, there's uh, fruit, and there's a snake, and it talks. Uh, well, it's, it's not saying that really there is a talking snake. There could have been, but I, I don't know. But it speaks of truth that actually happened and speaks of a meaning that should be clear. Now, I'll try to make it clear what God is trying to say. Here in Genesis chapter 3, there's a great recognition that we live in this world where there's pain and suffering including death. Our world is cursed. We saw in Genesis chapter 3 that there is the cursed ground. There's pain. There's the sweat of our face in which we do our work. And then we return to the dust. Uh, the, crown, the ground, of course, is the soil where we grow crops. There's farming difficulty these days. Drought, pest, flood. All our labours do not give us the return that we expect. But the ground also is symbolic of, of the whole world. In this world, often Mother Nature, as we call it, is actually against us. There's the forces of nature that threaten us. It includes the destructive floods in Libya a few weeks ago. The torrential rains and the human inability to maintain the dams, the thousands of lives lost. Our world is cursed. Early in this passage, relationships are cursed. Again, there's pain. And in that pain, the woman is cursed in, in her very childbirth. People have made uh, audio recordings of a woman giving birth and the labour, and 
If you don't know what it is, you think, ah, this, this woman's being attacked by people. And not only in terms of childbirth, but I think it symbolises child-rearing. The parents put so much effort and yet they don't always get the result they want. We as teenagers have caused our parents a bit of pain, I'm sure. And then there's the battle between the husband and wife. That relationship, that's meant to be the closest. And yet there's divorce, yet there's abuse, yet there's arguments. We're in a world that is in pain. And finally, there is death. And to dust you will return. Death. Where we all end up. Now, I'm not saying that People who go through more pain in this life are more evil or anything like that. I'm just saying that in this world, things are no longer right. Things are no longer fair. Even the distribution of pain and suffering is not fairly distributed. You can have you know, some dictator in North Korea who might live for, for a long life and enjoy everything. And you may get some you know, nice old lady who, who actually dies actually before she becomes an old lady, thinks it's just not fair. But we all face that same outcome of the grave. Just think of all our modern science, all our medical ingenuity, it has not changed the statistic one bit. One out of one still die. Genesis chapter 3, the Bible recognises this. It's real. Some other religions, like Buddhism, actually says, hey, this suffering is not real. In fact, this whole world is not real. It's just an illusion. You know, just go into meditation and, and just divorce yourself from this non-suffering. No, no, the Bible doesn't cop out like that. It's real. And what's more, this is not the end of it. For you notice, at the end of this passage, we see that there's something even worse than physical death. In fact, physical death is but a, a foretaste, a little sign of a worse reality. What the Bible calls spiritual death, of being away from, from God's life. To be away, you see there, from the Garden of Eden, this good place where God was relating well to mankind. They were able to walk in the core of the day. But now, we've been shut out from the garden. And the tree of life, we are never to go back there. It's prevented. It's, there's a barrier. We cannot go back. This is what the Bible sees as a, a life and a consciousness that is without God, without all the goodness of God, and therefore an awful conscious suffering in eternity. In other words, it's not just that this world has gone wrong. There is a future. There will be even more suffering. It's not just that God has lost control. In fact, God is bringing this curse. Again and again, God is the one who is cursing. And so this ramps up our question, doesn't it? It's not just God, why is there so much suffering in this world? But God, why, why are you cursing this world? 
and bringing us into a future curse. Why? Well, we're just going to look back one sentence to sentence 17, where God says to Adam, says to the man, because, because you listened to the voice of your wife, because you ate of the tree of which I commanded you not to, cursed is the ground. Because of you. We are the cause. At one level, if God gives a command, he says, don't do X. If he's God, if he's our maker, if we are just manufactured items, then we should listen to him, the ruler. And if he says, do not do this, then to do it is cause enough for him to punish us. No, this is not just breaking a rule out there, you know, on the you know, back of a door. No, this is breaking the very word of the God who made us. It's personal. But you say, well, isn't God meant to be good? Why did he, you know, put that tree there? You know, the tree that they ate, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whatever that is. Why did he put that tree there? Well, friends, you know, Man and Kai could have eaten all the other trees, couldn't they? Remember? Every tree was good for food. It's like you go to one of these uh, smuggler's boards, right? Oh, there's food. You could eat anything. And there's one plate here of mushrooms that you shouldn't eat. <laughs> it's there. There's a possibility for you to eat it. But God is so good that he gives you a warning sign, right? Don't eat it. You can eat all this. Why go for that? God is good. But we are those who have chosen to eat this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what actually is this fruit? Many people think it was an um, apple. Many people think it's about sex. Some ads like this. Uh, really, you know, it's about tempting you. Well, that looks more like a strawberry than an apple, but anyway. Friends, it's not about sex, right? God made sex for the husband and wife in chapter 2 when it was all good, right? Sex between husband and wife is good. And there's nothing wrong with apples. But what is about to be described in terms of mankind eating this fruit is going to actually ring true to our experience. For what they go through in the end, is what we do. It's, it's our attitude. We are, as it were, there, doing it with Adam and Eve. Well, what is this, this thing that they have eaten, this fruit? Well, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, and we will, we will see. What is this temptation about? The serpent says to the woman there in sentence four, look, if you eat it, you will not surely die. A direct opposition to what God said would happen if they ate the fruit. No judgment. Just skip judgment. So often that's our temptation, isn't it? Don't worry about it. I'm sure God's not going to judge. I mean, God's meant to be nice and kind, and I'm sure the Bible doesn't say anything about judgment. And then it says that not only will you not die, but also God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And he doesn't want that. 
See, God is trying to blind you, right? He's trying to stop you from, from something good. He's trying to stop us from fulfilling our full potential. For God knows, the next sentence, that if you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here's the crunch. What is this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? It is to be like God. Now, how does God know good and evil? He doesn't have to go to the UNSW library. Right? He doesn't have to Google it. He doesn't have to type in chat GPT and see what it comes up with. How does God know what's good and evil? Well, if he's God, he decides what is good and evil. He knows what is good for his own character, his own very nature. He's the one who defines this is good and therefore that is evil. We wanted to be like God to be able to do just that, to define what is good and what is evil. We wanted to be the lawmaker. You see, sin is not so much breaking rules, it's actually making rules, trying to be the lawmaker, trying to be God, trying to usurp the thing that only he should do. And more than that, we are those who think, well, if our eyes are open, the woman's eyes was open, and look what happened. She saw with her eyes that this fruit was, ah, oh, it's yummy, right? it's delicious, it's good. You're making me wise. That's what we do, isn't it? We think, if I go my own way, I decide what's right and wrong, then I can, I can do it better than God. I know better than God. I can live life better than God. We see it in terms of, we think, you know, we can just live for this life, we live for the now, just enjoy life. It works for a little while, until you get old, until you get through to your midlife crisis and what you've been living for is no longer as fulfilling as you thought it would be. We tell lies, we, we, we angry at people and we think, oh, yeah, I'm always right. You know, whenever you replay some of your conflicts, you, you're always right, aren't you? And what happens as a result, there are wars, Wars between friends, between family, across national boundaries. When we declare our independence of God, then we're saying, I run the show. And so sin is really about that big I in the middle. And it comes with the big I in the middle of our pride. And God calls us to account. And so, in chapter 3, verse 8, God seeks Adam and Eve out. They hide. They hide amongst the trees. They're the very trees that were meant to be good for them, good for food, but they run from God. Sometimes we have our own sophisticated trees, don't we? We use God's good gifts and we enjoy them and we just forget anything that's got to do with God. I just enjoy Forget God. These good gifts become distractions for me. The fine food, the fine music, the fine jobs. We appreciate our world. We investigate our world. And yet we think, oh, I understand how this world works. So I don't need God. Science has done away with God, has it not? And so we try to hide. 
We think that if we don't look at God, then God won't see us like little kids when they play hide and seek. But God finds them. And when God finds them, he exposes mankind. And what do we do? Point 2D, we attempt to blame God. You see there in the sentence 11, have you eaten the, the fruit I told you not to eat? And the man says, it's great, uh, great excuse, isn't it? The woman blames the woman, but the woman you put here, he blames God. It's a double barrel kind of blame. Friends, it wasn't really the woman's fault only. Um, he was meant to be the man. He was meant to take the lead. When she ate the fruit and gave it to him, what he should have done was say, don't eat that. Do the Heimlich manoeuvre. Get her to spill it out. He was, be the man. But he doesn't. He capitulates. He follows. He also took the fruit. And the woman, what does she do? Well, she also uh, blames. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Bible does believe in the spirit world. I think the serpent represents Satan, if you like. But we can't just pin it all on Satan. We also have our own agency. We also are people who make decisions, real decisions, and God treats us as real people. We can't just shift the blame. I was in the hospital staff room once, and there's a sign which said, to err is human. To blame it on someone else is even more human. I found this one on the web. To err is human, to blame on someone else shows management potential. <laughs> That's what the commerce students like, isn't it? We like to blame others. God, why is there so much pain in this world? It's you, God, isn't it? But God says, no, no, you are to blame. He treats us as adults. We are responsible. And so God, why is there suffering? And the answer may not be what we want at first. Because the answer really is, we are the reason. We want to call God down. Say, come on, God, come, let's sit down and let's have a chat, all right? Why is there suffering in the world? And we point the finger at him, but we find that the finger's really pointed back at us. And God could have left it there. If that's the only chat we had about suffering, then there's really no hope. We can just live life and try to get as much joy as possible, as much happiness to squeeze out of it in the short time we have. You know, YOLO, you only live once or you get to your bucket list and you eat, drink and marry for tomorrow we die. And hopefully you're not eating KFC with a stoma bag <coughs> next to you. Oh yeah, there's final judgment as well. Friends, if that is where the answer from God is left, we are left in a hopeless situation. But this chat, God, does not end there. For there's Genesis chapter 4. There's, in fact, the rest of the Bible. 
where God answers this question of pain, and yet the answer is actually there in chapter 3. I wonder if you noticed it, noticed it as it was read out for us. It's there in chapter 3 in verse 15. Remember God said to the serpent, and God says, there's a curse on you, and the curse is that there'll be an enmity, there'll be a conflict between your descendant and the woman's descendant. And a descendant of the woman will actually come and crush your head and you will bite his heel. You see, the serpent is not going to win. There's going to be a time when evil is going to be crushed. Uh, my mother-in-law... Uh, killed a black snake once. Uh, we were about to go over to her place and, you know, with the little kids and everything, and we found this dead snake there. And what happened there? And she said, well, there's a dead snake. Your kids were coming, so I got this brick and whacked it on the head. <laughs> oh, that's some brave woman. I was thinking, just as well, you tried, didn't try to step on it, right? You might have got bitten on the heel. That's what's going to happen. One day, someone from the woman, from Eve, is going to come and crush Satan, but in the process, will get his heel bitten on. To cut a long story short, to fast forward, it's really pointing to Jesus, who's the descendant of the woman. Jesus who comes and actually overcomes this curse of pain and suffering. Let's fast forward to another garden, instead of the Garden of Eden, to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're now about 30 AD. We're about almost just a, just a day or so before Jesus gets hung on the cross. And he's Jesus coming, knowing that he's on this, this mission to rescue, to rescue us from the curse. And he's in this garden, and this is what he prays to God, his Father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly. And his sweat came like drops of blood falling down. Did you notice that pain of agony, of sweat? Sweat that mankind would have in their work. And here is Jesus coming to do the very work and mission of God. And perhaps these seemingly drops of blood, the sweat, may be an echo of, what's about to happen as he dies on the cross. It's like someone on death's row. They know that death is imminent, just some 24 hours away. Except that this execution by the Romans, it's a lot worse than, than an electric chair. You die of actually respiratory exhaustion. You're hung there, the nails are in your wrists, the nails are in your heel, and it's very hard to breathe. In order to breathe and and you always want to breathe, no matter what pain you go through, you want to breathe, and you, you breathe, and you, you press up on the heel, and there's excruciating pain. And so they just go up and down, and sometimes for days, before they're exhausted, they cannot do it anymore. And then there's just the social outcast. Imagine your mother there, your friends there, looking on, as you get executed as a criminal, in the shame but the historical biography, the, the Gospels about Jesus' death, 
do not concentrate on that physical pain. Instead, it concentrates on this spiritual pain of, of Jesus saying, Why, Father, is it possible that I don't have to go through this? Not to take the cup. What is this cup? Well, this cup in the Old Testament is the cup of God's anger. God's curse. God rightly pours out his righteous judgment. And Jesus is asked to drink it full of strength, gobble it all down. Jesus knew what the cross meant, that it meant him taking the judgment of God. And so he didn't want... You'd be, you'd be in your... Anyone in their right mind would want, not want to go through with it, let alone the physical pain. It is the pain that Jesus went through for us. On the cross, he cried out, not only remove this cup from me, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? Why did God leave him there to die? Why did God abandon him? If he is perfect, if he never did anything wrong, it cannot be right, can it? It cannot be fair for God to judge him. But that is where, in Luke chapter 22, just a sentence or two before, we get the answer. He was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus himself did not reject God, did not have the eye in Sin have the eye in pride, but he died for our eye, our sin, our pride. He took the punishment in my place instead of me as my substitute on my behalf. It's, it's him taking that anger instead of me taking the anger. Why, God, is there so much pain and suffering in this world? God doesn't just answer that question. He gives the answer to our problem. He gives the solution that Jesus takes that curse instead of us. Elsewhere in the Bible, it spells it out in terms of, it's as if Satan, there, Satan is those um, authorities and rulers you see at the bottom sentence there. It's as if Satan has these accusations against us and can can, can say, ah, look what you know, Joshua's done wrong. Look what Ryan has done wrong. But what Jesus does is he gets all those accusations and he nails it to the cross. And all those things are paid in full. All our trespasses are taken, set aside, nailed to the cross. And so Jesus actually disarms the authorities, disarms Satan and his allies. They no longer have any more power over us because we are now those who can live as though we've never gone against God. For Jesus was judged as if he was the one who did all that. That is God's answer. Not only to pain and suffering out there, but my pain, my suffering, my eternity. There's one more little answer to this question. 
That is, God's not yet finished. I had my house painted a long time ago, and I was too, um, what do you call it, um, looking over the guy's shoulders. You know, painters don't like you looking over their shoulders. And as I followed him around, he was painting, hey, hey, you missed a bit there. You know, you missed a bit there. What about this? You left them. He, afterwards, he got pretty angry. He turned around and said, look, just let me finish. Then you can look at it. Well, friends, we could actually let God finish before we judge him. For God's actually not leaving our world in the state. He's bringing it to a future. And so at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see that there's going to be a time when this world is passed away and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Well, there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death itself. And more than that, in the very last chapter, you notice we actually get back into the garden. In fact, this is better than the garden. For now there's the tree of life again. Now we can be with God and live with him again. And guess what? Now there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there's no more possibility of us ever falling again. This is the good news that we can look forward to. People ask, why doesn't God come and clean up the mess? This pain, this suffering. Why would you come and clean up the mess? The fact is, he has come in Jesus. And he will come and finally wrap it all up. And it's good news if you trust in Jesus, but if it's someone that you do not trust in, you do not trust in Jesus, then it's not going to be good news. It's bad news. For when he cleans up the mess, he cleans up our mess as well. Our judgment, our war against God. And so, point four then, to finish off, God, that's not fair. Often, that is our aggro, isn't it? Now, you might have come along a bit aggravated against God. Why does he give us a fair go? Why doesn't he... I haven't really done anything too bad. I hope today, as we looked at the Bible, as we looked at God's answer, it's given us some caution to make sure we don't just blame him. To help us see that maybe we are the ones to blame. Sometimes this aggro is, is really heartfelt. If this was a personal, private conversation, I might hear you out more in how you are hurting at the moment. Unfortunately, I've got to go to another talk straight afterwards, but I'd love to stay and talk with you. But hopefully your friend and maybe your friend who brought you along, you can ask them about it. Because it is hard and and it's not the time necessary to, you know, bring up Bible verses when you're going through really tough times. And in that tough time, you do want to ask God, why me? Friends, I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the details. But what I know is this. That Jesus went through the greatest suffering there ever could be. And it was unfair. You know, when your brother or sister did something wrong and you got the blame for it, that's really unfair, isn't it? Well, we're the ones who did something wrong and Jesus got the blame for it. That is really 
unfair. That's why he said to God, is there any other way? Please take this cup from me. My son Jordan, when he was about three years old, he almost drowned. He was with his sisters in the swimming pool. He had a little bubble on, but he decided to be big boy and take his bubble off. I didn't see that. And so he walked down the steps of the swimming pool. First step, water got to here. Second step, the water got to here. Third step, the water got to here. And my daughter's noticed, Dad, I think Jordan's in trouble. So I rushed over and he was like this and he couldn't speak. And he looked up and just in the fear in his eyes and he reached out. Of course, I, I went and plugged him out. Jesus on the cross, reaching out, my God, why are you forsaking me? Did God come down and just pluck Jesus up from the cross and, and rescue him from death? No. He left him there to die. God, the question is not why is there pain and suffering in this world, but rather God, why did you leave Jesus on the cross in so much pain and suffering? It's for you. It's for me. It's not fair. But is that not amazing goodness? Is that not the answer that we actually all need? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness in answering our sin, our rejection of you, in taking the pain and suffering upon yourself, upon your son, that we might be those who can have the real answer to the pain and suffering in this world. And we thank you for what he did for us. That was not fair, but that was so good. And we pray these things in his name. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.